from Paul's letter to the Thessalonian church. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Now, concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, there is peace and security. Then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and who are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, Help the weak. Be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the, bro the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. This is the word of the Lord. Well, with a brief interruption last week uh, with Ned speaking, what a, what a wonderful, encouraging message that was. We've now returned to the final series or the final message in this series on First Thessalonians. If you were here at the beginning of the series, you may remember part of the reason we went through this series, part of the reason we went through this letter, was that this letter, more than many of the other New Testament epistles, describes and encourages faithfulness unto the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as a church who is learning 
who, uh, how to worship the Lord throughout the seasons of the church calendar, I thought it would be a fitting way to transition from this season of ordinary time into a time of Advent. Now, this week we have Thanksgiving, which is not part of the church calendar, but is a right and good holy day. It's a, it's a day to honor the Lord in holiness and thanksgiving. Uh, and it's been deeply Christianized or enculturated in the American experience. However, that's actually not the real beginning of the transition into uh, this new season. Thanksgiving is not the beginning of Advent, just in case you're learning these things. We will have another two weeks in the church calendar. The final week will be Christ the King Sunday, which is the end of the, the, the church, church year. And that Sunday is deeply connected to Advent. In Christ the King Sunday, we celebrate the current reign of Christ and not lament, but eagerly anticipate the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when we move into Advent this year, in years prior, we have been very focused on the first coming of Christ. But Advent has a dual focus. It has a remembrance of Israel's waiting for the Messiah's first coming, and the church recapitulates or redoes that waiting today unto the Lord's second coming. And so as we're moving from ordinary time to Advent, a season which is very much related to anticipating the Lord's return, what better epistle could we choose other than an epistle where Paul is working with the themes of perseverance unto the return of the Lord Jesus. So I want to review this series, uh, making just one or two comments per chapter, per message, before we look at today's passage. Paul began this letter reminding the Thessalonians of a great work of God among them. He described in 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 9, the description of the authentic word of God resulted in their conversion. He said, quote, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and the true God. If you had to look for a verse in the New Testament that describes the nature of the effect of conversion, that probably would be a great answer to that question. They have turned from idols. They, they are no longer worshiping things. They're worshiping the creator. And if you remember to that, that uh, first message in the series, you may remember we talked about the nature of idolatry, that you pay someone to go, go dig up gold ore and then you pay another person to chop down a tree, and then you take that wood and you fashion it into a shape, and then you overlay it with that gold, and then you bow down in front of dirt and trees. And we saw how in that view, idolatry is it's illogical, it's irrational, it's spiritually insane. And yet we saw how, in that message, how idolatry is not just in external bowing down to things, but is rather the disposition of the heart. This is what true conversion is. True conversion is the work of God by his spirit in which he delivers you from love of things, whether it be other people, material goods, power, sexuality, appetites, a lust for power, a desire to be influential. He delivers you from stuff and he allows you to worship God. You see, the best gift that we've been given in the Christian faith is not escape from hell. It is knowing who God is. Now, that, those two things are, go hand in hand. However, the point being, if we should attain heaven and the Lord Jesus not be there, it would be, as the Puritan prayers tell us, it would be a hell to us. Because that is what tr the, the essence of true Christianity is. It's knowing the living and the true God, serving him, loving him. Paul goes on to express, therefore, his great love for them. Because Paul has seen an authentic witness of the gospel among the Thessalonians, he has loved them. And we saw in, in chapter 2 how his love was descri described as a nur nursing mother. One of the chief joys of being a parent is to be able to see with my eyes a pictorial representation of the literary symbols that the scriptures use. 
I have never seen a mother be unkind, I'm sure it's happened, but being unkind in the midst of nursing. What Paul's trying to do is he's trying to say, take the best example of a nursing mother who is caring for and being tender with her children and remember, Thessalonians, that's how we were with you. That was the apostolic mark. Not only does Paul use this idea of a nursing mother, he also says that we were like a tender father or a father tender with his children. This notion of that God the Father has now done something in the apostles and these apostles are guarding these children as they're learning how to walk. One of my favorite portions of scripture early on in my Christian walk was in the book of Hosea when Hosea is capturing the heart of God as God is recoiling in, him, in his heart, uh, so to speak, um, about Israel's rebellion. And we remember, if you remember, I believe it's Hosea 11, um, he said, or maybe 13, he says, how can I give you up, O Ephraim? When you were a child, you le- I taught you how to walk. I led you with cords of human compassion. This idea that the father is holding his son as this little nation is learning how to walk. This is what Paul is saying. He's saying that he's been like a nursing mother and he and his team have been like fathers watching them learn to walk. So Christ-like was the love of the apostles that in the very next chapter, they say that in, in Acts, or excuse me, in 1 Thessalonians 3.1, captured in Acts 17 and 18, that they were willing to be left at Athens alone. And if you remember where we began this series, reading from Acts 17, we know that in Philippia and in Thessalonica, both cities cast out Paul and his team. And his great love for the Thessalonians was so strong that he said we were willing to be left alone in Athens. Coming from the context of what they had just experienced in the other Greek cities they were visiting, he is saying we were willing to be left surrounded by the enemy so that Timothy could come to you and establish you in the faith. This is sacrificial love. This is the love of Christ who was abandoned by his disciples, rippling by the Spirit into the life of Paul, where Paul is willing to take the hit, as it were, so that the Thessalonians could be blessed because he sent Timothy, his very heart, to them. Finally, in in, in chapter four, we see that when Paul receives Timothy's good report, Paul then reminds the Thessalonians of God's call, rather God's claim, When we talk about the call of God on our lives, that phrase in the modern Christian parlance or way of speaking is usually kind of narrowed down to, well, should we be married or should we be single? Or should we have this vocation or that vocation? Should I be a missionary or a pastor? We we narrow it down to this small external description of God's call. But as Paul is describing this to the Thessalonians, When he describes God's call, he means God's individual announcement that you belong to Jesus Christ, that his call has a claim upon your life, that it's not just an invitation to consider whether Jesus would allow you to escape hell or be comfortable for you. No, rather, through the preaching of Paul, God made a claim upon the Thessalonians. He gave them the announcement of their salvation and that by faith in that message, trust in that message, now God is wanting these Thessalonians to work out their calling. That because they know that they will be with the Lord forever, that that knowledge of living with God in purity should begin to infect today. It should work its way backward from the future into this moment that the Thessalonians have been called to walk in holiness and in purity. As we come to the final chapter in this epistle, I believe this is the theme and the aim that Paul is urging these people to continue building one another up in holiness and good deeds. I, I love the English Standard Version, how it translates the word encouragement, but it's interesting to me, other translations will say things, same word, it will use words like comfort 
or uh, archaic translations, pacify, or still archaic trans- translations, mollify, uh, make, make non-aggressing. That, that these Thessalonian Christians are supposed to build one another up. The imagery from 1 Peter is very similar. 1 Peter is saying that you are being together, you are being placed as, live, as little stones upon the living stone foundation of Christ, that you're being fitted together and built up into a spiritual house. Paul therefore turns to a series of final commands for the saints at Thessalonica to build up the body of Christ. This is not disconnected from the gospel. The gospel is not the announcement of forgiveness of sins detached from a call to purity. The gospel is all of that and more. These commands in this chapter simply comprise the ordinary daily obedience that should characterize a Christian's life. These commands, as we're going to examine today, after spending quite a bit of time on what Paul is describing in the first half of this chapter, these commands are not for super-Christians. These commands are not for pastors or elders or deacons. These commands comprise or make up the normal Christian walk. I want to look at three main ideas, therefore, in this passage. First is a sobriety that he commands them to have at the Lord's coming. And we're going to look in detail about why he is wanting them to be uh, non-afraid, non-fearful. Then we're going to look at, at just two simple verses in the middle of the chapter about what it means to support ministers in the Lord. The reason I've used the word ministers, that may be an official word, but I want to communicate that they have a ministry that they're doing for the body. And then finally, we're going to look at the last half of the chapter, the Christian's service, the normal way of living for Christians. Paul has reminded these Thessalonians of the joy which came from Timothy's report, that they were growing in faith, hope, and in love. And their faith was in God's gospel, his call, as we said, to turn from idols to serve the living and the true God. Their hope, the Thessalonians' hope, therefore, must be placed in the Holy Spirit's continued sanctifying work. As we're going to see at the end of this epistle, as as Paul gives this benediction, that he is quite confident that that the Lord Jesus will accomplish his goal. Paul has therefore shared his heart for them, and now he gives them commands so that they would share their hearts together in the church. In the prior chapter, if you were here two weeks ago, Paul addressed concerns regarding the second coming before the resurrection from the dead and is therefore in this chapter quelling or, or squashing or, or pacifying speculations concerning the coming judgment of Israel. Many people read this portion of 1 Thessalonians as all concerning the second coming at the end of the age, which we all believe, as Orthodox Christians, is still to come. But I believe, as we're going to see today, that Paul is directly addressing a concern that the Thessalonians had based on what he wrote in 1 Thessalonians 4. And my guess is this, that Timothy came and strengthened them in the faith. However, they had gotten certain things confused about the incoming judgment on that generation in Israel and the final coming, which will take place at the end of the age. And the reason I say that, as we'll examine, is that Paul goes to great lengths to quote other gospels that use particular phrases, some of which, while you were listening to the reading, I'm sure piqued your interest. Having addressed in the prior chapter this false teaching of the finality of death before the second coming, that teachers, w- that, excuse me, that, uh, that believers will not rise again, Paul, therefore, is eager to guard these saints from vain quarrels concerning their immediate future. In the prior chapter, Paul, Paul was was quelling or removing a fear that many Thessalonians had. They believed that if a Thessalonian believer died before the return of Christ, that they were dead forever. That's why he said, we don't want you to grieve as others do who have no hope. 
because we know that they will rise. What, what is the implication? Paul through Timothy had heard that there was grief in Thessalonia, that they were in a quandary of these believers who didn't stay awake for the return of the Lord Jesus. They didn't complete his commands. Paul therefore addresses in this chapter a different topic than the end of 1 Thessalonians 4. He addresses a great distress coming upon all Israel, which was prophesied by Christ as he references the Thessalonians' knowledge of Matthew's gospel. Now, many of us, if you are not a New Testament scholar, you may not have considered who has which letters when. If they don't have Matthew's gospel, I want you to go with me because they at least know the phrases Paul uses. It, is, it, is, it would be too uh, circumstantial to be otherwise. Paul uses particular phrases, as we'll see, that the Thessalonians, even if they do not have the gospels in written form, they at least have the apostolic tradition as Paul spent weeks among them, warning them not to go back into Judaism for judgment was coming upon all those who did not receive the Lord Jesus. Even if they don't have the gospel of Matthew, by Paul's repeated continual use of specific phrases, we know that Paul is referencing at least an idea in their minds, that they received knowledge through the, through the apostles of what the Lord Jesus had said before he departed. In verse 1 of this chapter, Paul writes, Now concerning the times and the seasons, that's an important phrase, the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. Why? Because they're going to escape that judgment, and they have knowledge, as he says in verse 2, For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Now, some people take this phrase, the day of the Lord, and they shrink it down to one particular day, one 24-hour period. I think that the day of the Lord, as evidenced through the scriptures, is a day of judgment, and that the day of the Lord has happened many times, as we know from the minor prophets. It happened against Israel in the past. Then it's going to happen against Israel soon, soon to Paul's readers, and it's going to happen soon, somehow soon, to us at the end of the age, at the end of all things. Paul here alludes to Jesus' response to the disciples just before his ascension, dissuading them from speculations concerning the time of the final restoration of the kingdom to Israel. In Acts 1, 6, and 7, first the disciples ask, is it at this time that you will restore the kingdom to Israel? Jesus responds, according to Luke's uh, writings in Acts seven, uh, Acts one seven. It is not for you to know. Here's the the phrase: the times or seasons that the Father has fixed upon His own authority. Does Paul know Acts one seven? It's very likely that he does. Likewise, this entire Mount Olivet discourse, all of Matthew twenty four, is given in response to Jesus' disciples asking him. This in Matthew 24, 3, when will these things be and what will be the sign of his coming and of the end of the age? Again, I take that to be two things, his coming and the end of the age. The question we have to ask ourselves is this, how did the Thessalonians get this knowledge? He says, you yourselves know that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night it's likely that they had Matthew's gospel. Again, if they didn't have Matthew's gospel, the reason Paul uses these phrases is he wants to create in them an orthodox scriptural understanding of the final things. This is a direct allusion to Jesus' words in Matthew 24. In fact, the entire passage where Paul is encouraging them to not be drowsy but to stay awake, spiritually speaking, is a direct reference to Jesus' commands. He gives a parable. You might remember it, that there is a bridegroom who is coming to a wedding feast, and some of the virgins did not trim their lamps. They did not have oil. But when the bridegroom knocked upon the door, it was too late to get oil. 
In Matthew 24, 43 through 44, we read this. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake. Can you see why the Thessalonians might have been afraid about those who didn't stay awake but had died? He would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. This idea that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night is a direct reference to the Jesus tradition recorded in Matthew 24. Jesus, as he's warned his apostles to not apostatize, not forsake the teachings that he's given them, Jesus is teaching his apostles a great and important truth. Some people, when they begin to learn that there was a judgment at the close of the New Testament canon upon the nation of Israel, and they begin to see certain things about the the coming of the Lord or the day of the Lord, they are afraid that this reading will then give them license to live loosely or it will lessen the effect of Christ's command to sobriety. Not so. Jesus teaches the apostles to live with an awareness of the coming judgment upon Israel just as there is a coming judgment upon all nations. He commands his apostles, he says to them, therefore you also must be ready. They must be aware of the spiritual realities of their day. They must not be deluded by that which is the zeitgeist, the world spirit. And so this makes a deep impact on the apostles. Likewise, Paul continues in verse three, while people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as, notice this, labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. Paul, again, is directly referring to Christ's words in the Mount Olivet Discourse concerning these labor pains. Jesus had just warned in Matthew 24 that the disciples would be experiencing a worldwide or culture-wide strife preceding a judgment of Jerusalem and Judea. In Matthew 24, 7 and 8, we read, For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. I would suspect that most of us, when we've read that verse, we've thought that's future to us. He goes on to say, verse 8, here's where Paul is referencing, all these things are but the beginning of birth pains. The reason we know that Paul is referencing these things is because he knows that the Thessalonians somehow have an understanding of what Matthew wrote in Matthew 24. He's directly alluding to three or four major ideas, times and seasons. It's not for you to know the times and seasons. He's referring to a thief in the night. Jesus told his disciples if they had known when the thief was coming, they would have stayed awake. Labor pains. Jesus had warned his disciples that all these things, the the strife in the world preceding the judgment of Jerusalem, would come upon them as pains upon a laboring woman or a pregnant woman. The reason we know that Jesus is referring to the judgment of Israel at that time is not just from Matthew's gospel. It's a major idea from Luke's gospel. But it's this, in Matthew 24, 34, Jesus gives us knowledge of the immediacy, relative immediacy of a judgment coming by him saying in verse 34, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. The word generation in Jesus' quote to the apostles is not a mystical, poetic word. It is not a word that says this kind of sinning. It is rather saying there is a definite time. When Jesus was going to the cross, what did the crowds say? His blood be upon us and upon our children. And Jesus then warned in Matthew saying that all of the blood, all of the righteous blood shed from Abel to Zechariah, who you killed between the porch and the altar, who they killed in the middle of the temple, would come upon this generation. So the Thessalonians are clearly concerned that they might fall suspect or they might fall under the judgment which they knew would come and shake the entire world. 
And by that, I mean the world of Israel, the world of the Mediterranean, the world of Greek Hellenism. Paul's desire, therefore, in these verses is to calm the Thessalonians by eliminating their confusion because the Thessalonians saw the coming of the Lord Jesus in judgment and the final coming at the end of the age as the same thing. Clearly, these Thessalonians were distressed concerning those who failed to stay awake. If you remember two weeks ago, or or just read 1 Thessalonians 4, they were concerned that those who had, quote, fallen asleep, died, had failed to obey Jesus' teaching, to stay awake, to trim their lamps, to be watchful, to persevere. And so, therefore, Paul, in the prior chapter and in this chapter, is calming their fears. He is pacifying their fears. Those who have died have not failed to keep Christ's commands to be alert. And likewise, those who were alive at this moment cannot be caught off guard nor ashamed at the, at the coming of the Lord Jesus. And that's exactly what Paul wants to do. Verse four, but you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. They were concerned that because they didn't know the time when the Lord would arrive, that they may be doing something or living in a certain way, that they would be caught off guard and would fall under condemnation and be judged by the Lord Jesus. Verse five, for you are all children of light, children of the day, deeply referring to, I think, the language of John's gospel. We are not of the night nor of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. Do you see what Paul does in this verse? I think this is quite beautiful. He takes their former confusion about the word awake versus asleep, using it as a metonym for dead or alive, and now he takes it and he says, you know now, now I want to say something to you. There's a spiritual sleepiness which you must not become. You must not fall under the drowsiness of the, the world. He says, we are not of the darkness. We are not of the night. Therefore, do not sleep. He clearly is moving from a word picture to a spiritual command. Do not be lullabied into the world and into the things of the world. Paul, therefore, writes these words to assure the Thessalonians that they will not be caught off guard, but will escape God's wrath through salvation in Jesus Christ. And this is why the teaching, the understanding of the New Testament, as it warns the Christians to not fall into the judgment coming against Israel, the reason that teaching is so powerful is because it's a wonderful historic proof that just as the Lord Jesus came against that wicked nation, so also he will come against the wicked nations who resist his authority today. He will dash the nations with a rod of iron. Therefore, for Christians today reading these words, we likewise must not be caught off guard. Those who are awake today must not worry that they will be caught off guard, but at the same time, they are commanded not to be caught up with the world's system. Verse 9, for God has not destined us for wrath. The only other quote of the word wrath in 1 Thessalonians is in chapter 2 when Paul says that wrath has come upon the Judeans at last. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us so that whether we are awake, still alive, or asleep, dead, we might live with him. What a wonderful, I love these words. Because what this says to me, this, what this says to the Thessalonians, what this says to you is God has not destined you for wrath. You don't have to worry that you will somehow sin as the Lord is returning and therefore fall under judgment. Nevertheless, you're told to stay awake. All those who are in Christ, whether in the first century or the final century, whenever that will be, whether asleep or alive, will never face God's wrath for Christ totally drank that cup down to the dregs. Christ has thoroughly drank that cup for us. In fact, when we come to the table today, this is why the cup is here. It's because Jesus wanted to preserve for his people a symbol. He drank all of that cup. 
Nevertheless, we as Christians today must stay alert because the siren song of the world is like a lullaby. If you don't know Greek myth, I I love Greek myth for its uh, teaching powers of the evil of man. Um, The Greeks had this idea of a siren, and I don't have time to go into all the background and, and Um, Greek myth isn't canonical. There's lots of different opinions of who the sirens were. They're not real, by the way. Um, The sirens were kind of, you can think of them like mermaids, that they would sit on the coasts and they would sing songs. And as the ships came by, the sailors would be drawn by the beauty of these songs and they would take their boats closer to the shores, not knowing the danger that that lay underneath the waters in the sharp corals and rocks along the coasts. This picture, the Greek myth idea is that this is the song of the world. This is the song which entices men to destroy their ships upon the rocks of reality. And as Christians, we must be aware. That's why Paul says, do not be drunk spiritually or or physically. Do not be asleep. You must be sober. You must stay awake. He says in verse 11, therefore encourage one another and build one another up. This idea building up means to build up a dome, a a place to live, to build up a place where God's spirit abides just as they are doing. Therefore, as a means of building up Christ's people, Paul moves from this command to build up the church, to encourage one another to remain faithful even unto the Lord's coming. Paul then says, here's one of the chief means by which you can build up Christ's people to obey and honor and highly esteem the ministers of the Lord Jesus. Verse 12, we ask you, brothers... Here he is not talking to other elders, he is talking to all of the Thessalonians. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. That command to be at peace clearly indicates that if you don't do the former things, if you don't honor them, esteem them highly in love, then there won't be peace. As Christians, we must face the reality that there are always people who are over us in the Lord. It may surprise you, it may be countercultural to say this, but the Christian church is not a flat organization. If you've ever spent any time in modern business theory, there's this revival of just everyone, no one's anyone's boss, no one has any job descriptions. And we all just do what we need to do. Now, in a startup of 10 people, that might make sense. In a small, agile team, you may need that. But it's not the case that Christ has set up his people like that. To be sure, to be absolutely sure, Christ is the only head, the only rightful head, and the only real head of the church. However, he has appointed guardians for the saints. He has appointed shepherds to feed the sheep. And if you didn't know this, the shepherd is the one who has to feed the sheep, not the other way around. The church, therefore, is not an egalitarian order. It is not as if just everyone's the same and all of us have equal weight and authority. There are differences of role and there are differences of calling. There are also differences of gifting. The very concept of submission in the church necessitates order. I want you to think about this for just a second. If you don't have any order, how can you submit? Because the first thing in submission is who submits to whom? Which idea should reign supreme? Clearly, Christian ministers ought to only bring the word of God to bear. We cannot bind consciences based on our own opinions. Nevertheless, submission can't be submission when you feel like it. Because then it's not submission. It's your preference at that point. Though they have been given authority and responsibility, those who are ministers in Christ's church may not lord it over. So the idea is this. There are people in the church who are over us. There are people who are over you. There are people who are over me. Those people, although they are over me, they may not lord it over me. Jesus warned his disciples. He said, 
you've heard that the Gentiles, the rulers of the Gentiles, the benefactors, they like to rule with a strong hand. They lord it over. It shall not be so among you, but the greatest among you shall be the servant. Those who are over us in the Lord have a higher responsibility to serve. Nevertheless, the ministers of Christ's church, whether they be bishops, a New Testament word, pastors, or elders, both New Testament words, they are watching over our souls and will give an account to Christ. I am deeply thankful that there, there is someone other than me watching out for my soul. If, if you've lived long enough, you will look back upon your life and you will say, those years I was deluded. If I'm not deluded now, and praise the Lord that there is someone who is in charge of my soul who has charge over it and will give an account to the Lord Jesus. Therefore, to esteem them very highly in love requires a true Christian love produced by humility and charity. This phrase, to esteem them very highly in love, certainly does not mean obstinate obedience or obedience when you are told to do so. But rather, this idea means to receive and to hear their instruction as if it is coming from someone who you deeply love, a parent, a spouse, a trusted friend. It means to receive this, the person in the spirit of what they're saying. One very simple test, if you're looking for a way to know whether you esteem those over you in the Lord very highly in love, is this, when was the last time you obeyed without complaining? In marriage, if you, if you haven't been married you'll, and you do get married, you'll find this out, that one of the greatest tests of Christian obedience as a husband or a spouse is when you do something that you're asked to do and you don't begrudgingly do it. It's one of the greatest proofs that I know that the Spirit is actually active in my life is when my wonderful amazing wife asks me to get laundry out of the basement that I do it without any sort of scuff, scoff, sigh, complaining. Can I do it tomorrow? <laughs> if this never takes place for you in your Christian walk, where if you never simply obey Someone who is over you in the Lord, who's been, who's been given charge over your, over your soul, who has to give to Christ a report on what he did with your soul. If you've never obeyed without complaining or suggesting that it's a bad idea, you may not be highly esteeming them in love. So I would tell you this, we have two brand new elders at our church but every elder, every minister, every pastor, deacon, even volunteers, evangelists, prophets, whoever you wish to identify them as, all Christian ministers need the support of their congregation through at least encouragement, words of affirmation, prayer, and service. By this, the entire church is built up, enlarged, and matured. When this happens, as Paul says, be at peace, God's people live together in peace. When this takes place, God pours his spirit upon a congregation. I've experienced this not only in our church, but in our marriage, that sometimes it merely is, it's not whether or not the leader is right or wrong, because it's a matter of flavor or a matter of, you know, it could be right to do A, it could be right to do B, there's no way to tell which would be a better thing. And that the simple obedience brings a great blessing. In fact, as a church, we experienced this in the coming to this building. That, that months ago, back when we did the state of the church meeting, that a few weeks before that, we were feeling as elders that we needed to find a new place to, to meet. And the initial step of obedience that we took resulted in great outpouring of, of financial giving. It was an amazing thing to behold, that a little step of obedience done in trust that the Lord's word is true, that Christ does reign on his throne, that that obedience brought a great blessing. Now, that doesn't always happen like that, but nevertheless, your ministers, your elders need your prayers. They need your encouragement. They need your support. Therefore, Paul then addresses not just how the saints should relate to those who are over them in the Lord, 
but how all of the saints should live together, giving specific commands and general principles. He says in verse 14, we urge you brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Through this description or litany of actions, we come to see how engaged the Christian service within the church should be. Now, within the church, I do not mean in any way within church services. In fact, obeying this list, as Paul has written, would be totally impossible should your Christianity be a personal and private matter affecting nothing outside of Sunday mornings. How can you admonish the idol if you are only being a Christian, quote-unquote, being a Christian during Sunday worship? You, you wouldn't even know who the idol are. Each of these commands, admonish the idol, strengthen the weak, be patient with them all. Each of these commands presumes a relational context of church participation or even membership in which you both know others and others know you. How can you be patient with everyone if you are the only Christian on your smartphone app church that morning? You can't be patient with anyone because there's no one to be patient with. This is the assumption or the presumption in these letters. Therefore, true obedience to these commands, which are part of walking out the gospel, requires true community because Christ did not purchase brides. He purchased a bride. It is one people. And so, therefore, the Christian is not to be on guard for others alone, but should also be especially concerned with his own soul. These commands are, some of them are deeply applicable to oneself, and they are also deeply applicable to a group of people. And some of these pronouns are ambiguous as to who should be obeying them. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. I love that verse because he doesn't resolve the relative pronoun this. You resolve that relative pronoun. Are you going through a hard time in life? This is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. Therefore, rejoice. I just read a wonderful book that was taking readers through the book of Ecclesiastes. It was a commentary on Ecclesiastes. And one of the, the, the point of that book, if you had to sum it up in one sentence, is receive all of God's gifts with grace and lift your hands high to heaven. Whether it be a good thing to you or a bad, God's will will be done. Verse 19, do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies. Some people interpret that as sermons. Don't despise sermons. But test everything, hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. That is what is called throwing down the gauntlet. Abstain from every form of evil. Thinking poorly of a brother or sister in your heart, that's a form of evil. Looking too long at a member of the opposite sex, that's a form of evil constantly striving to get that next raise, even though you're not ready for it, I think that's a form of evil. Wanting that other person's car because it has hubcaps and yours doesn't, that's a form of evil. The point that Paul calls these Christians to, he calls them just like the Lord Jesus called them. Be perfect for your heavenly father in heaven is perfect. Now, at this point, Hearing this high calling of Christian obedience, we, and I'm sure the Thessalonians were, may be tempted to despair of the impossibility of such a standard. Abstain from every form of evil? Paul, you've not seen the internet. <laughs> you, you haven't known what it's like to deal with the persecuting Jews in Thessalonia. You don't know what it's like to have to forgive brothers in the church who wound you, Paul. Paul knew and he called them to an impossible standard. The reason it is an impossible standard is without the Holy Spirit, we can do nothing. This standard, however, is not impossible 
for it is God who sanctifies. I love this doctrine that it is the Holy Spirit who produces sanctification in believers. Why? Because I know that I can't produce that sanctification. And if you've been brought by God to any awareness of your spiritual neediness, you know that you can't produce that level of sanctification. Therefore, Paul blesses these Thessalonians. He says in verse 23, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. That's probably a very precious verse to some of you. Some of you are struggling against and are fighting against sin. Some of you have given up the fight and are in danger. Nevertheless, some of you are fighting and you are despairing that you will never stop worrying or you will never stop lusting or you will never stop being envious or you will never stop wasting all of your time and being foolish with the things you've been given Yet God will sanctify you completely. It may not happen until your final day. The Lord will do this. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless. Does that mean you won't ever get sick? It doesn't mean that. He rather refers to what he wrote to the Corinthians, that those who sin sexually sin against their own body. Christians who have cancer, who lose limbs, Christians who die of diseases are not failing to be preserved according to this verse. That's not what Paul is talking about. You should not use this as a verse to demand that God heal you because Paul wanted the Thessalonians to be preserved in body or kept blameless. He says, may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. This is the call to the Christian at the end of Paul's letter to the Thessalonians is he will sanctify you, but nevertheless, he wants you to work hard at doing these things to build one another up in the church. Knowing that Christ will sanctify his people, we need not fear failing for his grace is totally assured. Therefore, because we know we cannot fail, we can fully give ourselves wholeheartedly to the task of building up his people. So this is the aim of this text. This is the aim of my message today. As those charged with strengthening our brothers, let us seek to do good to Christ's church as we ourselves obey in faith. This is what Paul is calling the Thessalonians to, and God, by his grace, preserving that letter for us, that's what he's calling us to. Build up your brothers, admonish the idle, strengthen those who are weak, and also you yourself abstain from every form of evil. Let's close. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that Paul is writing to these Thessalonians the very commands of God. And not only the commands, but the announcement that you have accomplished a great salvation. That just as they have been saved by trusting in the promise that they've been saved by faith, that that faith which is alone is never alone in practice. Lord, we thank you that you have brought us into such a good, wonderful calling. And we pray that you would open up our eyes to the power of your spirit to produce sanctification within us. We pray, Lord, that you would be fully uh, seated upon the throne of our hearts, that you would reign, not just in heaven, but in our hearts, in our homes, in our lives, and in this church. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.